there are certain days, certain times of the year when on any given Sunday, you might expect certain passages to be preached. For example, on a Resurrection Sunday, you would likely walk into this building and you would likely expect a passage to be preached from, say, Matthew 28 or Mark 16 or Luke 24 or John 20 or John 21. Uh, You would expect something like that, maybe 1 Corinthians 15, passages that deal with the resurrection leading up to the celebration of the Incarnation, or if Incarnation Day fell on a Lord's Day morning, you might expect me to preach from Matthew 1, or Matthew 2, or Luke chapter 2. Old Testament references, maybe Micah 5, 2, Isaiah 7, 14. Well, if April Fool's Day fell on a Sunday, you might expect me to just walk through whatever passage or book that we're teaching on at that time, and you'd be right to expect that. But I could, I could preach from Psalm 53 or Psalm 14 because those passages deal with what the Bible describes as the fool. April Fool's Day would have a fitting text in Psalm 14 or Psalm 53. A little bit more about how they parallel each other um, in a moment. Not too much on that. Lord willing, when we get to Psalm 53, I'll talk more about the comparisons there. Um, But in biblical discourse, when you hear a fool referenced, it's not dealing with practical joking. That's not the focus of that identification. Um, But we'll see what that identification deals with shortly. You might ask, why are the people of God, you look at Psalm 14, I just read it to you, you might ask, why are the people of God singing lyrics about the fool and what the fool says in his heart? Right? Aren't the Psalms for worship? So what are the people of God doing saying, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God? Well, you remember that the Psalms are not only conduits for worship, the Psalms are didactic, they are instruments for teaching. There's a teaching function to the psalms. So as the people of God would call these psalms to memory and sing them out, they would be instructed as they were even worshiping. And they'd be coming in agreement with God's worldview. I think that's an important part of this psalm. It is, at least part of it is, as one commentator noted, a dirge on depravity. But I think one of the important takeaways for the Christian is especially that the Christian should see the importance of having their worldview aligned with God's view. This psalm will challenge you. It will force you to make sure that your worldview and the way you view the world and your view of human beings lines up with God's view. So that's part of what's happening. As the people of God were singing this song, it's as though their minds were being tuned like an instrument that's out of tune, maybe much, maybe little. Nonetheless, singing this psalm forces you, if you're going to come in agreement with it, to have your mind tuned so that you're in proper alignment with God's view. We're also going to see as we go through the psalm that's filled with, um, or it has within it, tender assurances of God's affection for and His nearness to His people, as well as an assured accountability for those who afflict His people. This is one of those psalms, and a lot of times commentators will try to categorize psalms. Like some psalms neatly fit into the category of like a lament psalm. Psalm 13, for instance, neatly fits into that category. Some laments begin with lament and they end with praise, such as the pattern oftentimes in what are categorized as lament psalms. But Psalm 14 is kind of difficult to categorize. You'd see uh, different commentators try to categorize it in different ways. Many call it an individual or a communal lament as the people of God were singing about the depravity that was in the world and the assurance that God would hold such individuals to an account. 
Some see this psalm as prophetic. And that you'll see as we get to the end of the psalm that there's a dynamic of uh, assurance of God's um, vindication of His people. There's other ways that this psalm is categorized as well. It's often referred to as a wisdom psalm because you're dealing with the fool. And when you think of folly and wisdom, you think of the Proverbs and wisdom literature. Psalm 1 is a kind of uh, wisdom psalm where you see this contrast between a right way and a wrong way, the way of wisdom, the way of the fool, so to speak. But I think that this psalm doesn't easily fit into any one category, as is the case with many of the psalms. It kind of bears a little bit of each of those designations. You're going to see a little bit of each of that as we walk through the psalm. This psalm is also very similar to, if you wanted to read Psalm 53 later, you'd see that's very similar to Psalm 53. Very similar. There's just some differences as you kind of walk through it. One distinction comes in the contrasting portions of the latter portion of each psalm. The end of Psalm 14 is, as one commentator noted, Alan Ross, it provides a dynamic of, quote, comfort for the faithful and a warning to the wicked. Whereas the end of Psalm 53 appears to celebrate, to quote another commentator, Van Gemeren, God's victory over the enemies as an evidence that he is sovereign over the acts of fools. So those are just some notes to govern your own um, contrasting that you might do a little bit later on. Now, Psalm 14 reminds the believer of the godless world in which he or she lives. To which many believers today would say, really, do we really need more reminders about that? Between the Psalms that we've walked through, between what we're seeing in our world, do we really need more reminders that we live in the midst of a godless world? I want to remind you that this reminder is in a category of its own. This is not like other reminders. You watching the news and getting reminded that you live in a fallen world or seeing a feed on your phone is different categorically than this. This is written, yes, by the hand of David, but it's written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The perspective provided in this psalm transcends earth. It reaches heaven. It's from heaven. It's not only human, but it's divine. And it's not just a reminder of us living in a fallen world. It's God's instruction to His people who are living in the midst of that fallen world. So it's not just a news break. You live in a fallen world and things are bad. (laughs) That's not all it is. It's a message from God to His people. Because God wants to comfort His people who live in the midst of that kind of world. Well, we'll see all that as we get into the text. The superscript uh, does not give us much about the context. We see it's to the chief musician again. So written by David, it's a psalm of David given to this one who was the chief musician who would essentially function as Israel's music director so that the people of God would sing this song, be instructed by it and worship God through it. And then we get into the psalm itself. We begin in Psalm 14, verse 1, where we read, The fool has said in his heart, There is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none who does good. So where does the folly of fallen man begin? Well, I think you could rightly say in his fallen nature. I think that's where it begins. From the fallen frame, from the soil of a, of a fallen human being, comes forth the fruit of fallenness. But if you were to argue, well, where does it come from practically? Ask, where does it come from practically? I think you can argue, as even one commentator does, as Proverbs famously asserts, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 
And here we get the flip side of that statement. The rejection of God is the start of folly and moral corruption. One can argue that it begins, the folly of fallen man, at least practically, begins with the denial of God in one way or another. This is the epitome of foolishness. It's the suppressing of truth that every human being innately knows to be true according to Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, is the language of Romans chapter 1, they did not glorify Him as God, neither were they thankful. What did they do? We see also in Romans 1, they suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. So from God's vantage point, everybody on this world has an innate knowledge of God's presence. Innate knowledge of God's existence. It's understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and divine nature. You look out in creation and it witnesses to a divine creator, intelligent design. You see that in your own heart. You have the witness of conscience, that there is a moral accountability that you have that transcends mere materialism because there would be no ultimate moral accountability if what was ultimate was material. Moral accountability is connected to a moral creator. So from God's vantage point, Everybody knows there's God. But the problem begins when fallen man suppresses that truth or exchanges the truth for a lie and tries to remove God from His throne, albeit as futile as that is, and tries to put on the throne something else. And ultimately that something else is really a reflection of the creature's own desire to be on the throne. Well... Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and you could argue, even as Tremper Longman does, that the rejection of God is the start of folly and moral corruption. Now, when we read here in verse 1, the fool has said in his heart, the identification fool does not speak of someone who is simply silly, right? Oh, you're being such a fool, or you're acting so silly. No, the idea here in biblical terminology is that a fool is somebody who is committed to moral folly. That is, in a sense, a synopsis. And now you can unpack the idea of a fool much, and I'm going to attempt to unpack it a little bit for you. The Hebrew word that's used here for fool is nabal. Nabal. One might recall the interactions that David had with a man who bore that name, Nabal. You can read that account in 1 Samuel 25. He lived up to that name, and as one commentator noted, he suffered the consequences for it. Make no mistake, by the way, when you read that account in 1 Samuel 25, Nabal, he was a successful man. He was a wealthy farmer. So you can be a fool and successful in the eyes of the world. Right? You think about the man who stored up riches for himself and didn't realize he had so much stuff that he was going to build even bigger barns for himself. But he's identified by God as a fool, not knowing that his soul was going to be required of him even that night. So you could be successful and be a fool. You could be wealthy and be a fool. Nabal was a fool. As Abigail noted, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. And you can kind of see how being a fool is unpacked in um, 1 Samuel 25 through Nabal, the man whose name meant fool. Um, Now, it doesn't mean that a person is necessarily intellectually lacking. It's important to note. When you see biblical term fool, it doesn't mean that somebody is necessarily intellectually lacking, but that wisdom is lacking. The very first use of the word Nabal is seen in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 6. And there, if you were to look at the text, to be foolish 
is the opposite of being wise. To be foolish is to be unwise. So we get a little bit of what it means. It's not about intellectual capabilities as much as it is wisdom and walking in wisdom versus walking in folly. Proverbs shows us that excellent speech is not becoming to a fool. Proverbs 17.7, that a fool is akin to a scoffer, both of whom bring no joy to their father. Proverbs 17.21, society itself can be generally disturbed when a fool is filled with food, i.e. made rich. We see that a little bit later on in the Proverbs. But perhaps the best unpacking of what the Nabal, the fool, looks like is found in Isaiah chapter 32, verse 6. There the text reads, For the foolish person will speak foolishness, and his heart will work iniquity. So he's got an inside-out kind of problem. His heart works iniquity, sinfulness, things that are outside of God's design and will, and he speaks forth that folly. To practice ungodliness, to utter error against the Lord, to keep the hungry unsatisfied, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. So the fool is somebody who lives in folly, not only with respect to his wrong views of God and the way in which he utters error against the Lord, but also that folly manifests itself in the way he treats other people. You could say that the fool lives in rebellion to the greatest commandment and the one that is also like it, the second greatest commandment. The fool does not love God, he lives in rebellion against God. And the fool does not love people, he treats people wickedly, or he uses people for his own benefit, and so on. When you read Isaiah 32, if you want to compare it with 1 Samuel 25, you might wonder if Isaiah, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, had Nabal in mind. Because a lot of the descriptions that you see in Isaiah 32, verse 6, seem to fit the way Nabal, the guy in 1 Samuel 25, acted towards David and his men who were hungry and in need. So that would be an interesting comparison for you to make. Now, when it says here, the fool has said in his heart, there's no God, that denial can include the denial of God's existence, what we know to be atheism. Now, I'll get to what else it can mean in a moment, but let's just think of how scary that is. To come to a place where somebody believes that there is no God is to use a kind of reference that one of the writers um, cited in Spurgeon's Treasury of David Um, reference to be something akin to being on a lower level theologically than even demons. You think of demons, right? Take, for example, the words of the two demons, uh, or or the demons that were found in the two men in Matthew chapter 8. So in Matthew chapter 8, verse 29, we have this language coming from the two men there. What have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now again, as that writer in Spurgeon's Treasury of David noted, you look at the theology behind those statements. They're acknowledging God, God the Father. They're acknowledging Jesus as the Son of God. They're acknowledging a time of judgment that is to come, and they're acknowledging torment that will be associated with that judgment. Remember that James, even in James chapter 2, said, you believe in God? You believe that there is one God? You do well. The demons also believe and tremble. So to be at a point where you say, I have so suppressed the truth and unrighteousness that I don't even believe that God exists. I believe that we are the result of time, motion, matter, and chance, and that somehow everything got started from nothing. It is to come to a scary point, and I would plead with anyone who is at that point to flee from that point because it is folly. 
The scripture says here, God's vantage point of such a view is that it is foolish. You have creation screaming out loud that he is a wonderful and intelligent designer. You have the reality of right and wrong written in your own conscience, bearing witness to the reality of a coming accountability. You have how God entered into history time and time again as witnessed through in the Scriptures and how He sent His own Son to die on the cross for sinners and to be raised from the dead and all the amazing historical witnesses to those truths. But the language can also speak to the denial of God's relevance and importance in everyday life, what we might refer to as practical atheism. In other words, it's as though somebody is living as if there is no God. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God, or for God, there's no God for me, or just kind of look at the language here, you might see how there is, is italicized. The fool has said in his heart, no God. So it's as though the fool lives in such a way that God is not a factor. Maybe they're thinking God doesn't intervene in the works of man. He doesn't even care. He kind of just lets this whole thing run on its own. Or God has no bearing on my life or whatever God is. It's irrelevant. It's unimportant. So for the fool, according to the scriptures, God has no bearing on the way that a person thinks, on the way a person acts. There's no reality of accountability and so on. The fool is one, to use language from uh, Romans 1, who does not like to retain God in their knowledge. In fact, the fool is one who deep down, you see the scripture here, says in his heart, right? So that may speak to the fact that he doesn't always verbalize it and he has it in his heart, but it can also speak to, and probably even speaks even more so, to the fact that this is a conviction. That this is what he really believes. In his heart, no God. No God for me. It's not a big deal. It's kind of silly to even think about all this God stuff. You just live your life. You do what's best for you. And that's the best way to live your life. From God's vantage point, God identifies it in the scripture as foolish. And if you were to forget that in Psalm 14.1, you'd get reminded about it in Psalm 53 verse 1. God wants his people to know that that is foolish. Now, I just want to say this just by way of pastoral application for a moment. This is where we would do well to take a moment and consider how this text might apply to us. Fools, as defined in Psalm 14, verse 1, were not limited to non-Israelite atheists, either theoretical or practical. It wasn't only limited to those in Israel, right? Those who were in Israel but lived as if Yahweh was not the true God. But it has ultimate application for any person in any generation. I think we have to be careful to make sure that we are not professors of faith in the one true God, yet live our lives essentially as though we are saying, no God. No God for me. Imagine how many people are in Israel. You, mean, you could just look at the opening chapters of Isaiah and you get a sense of this. How many people in Israel were professors of faith in Yahweh, the one true God, yet in their actions, in their deeds, they lived as if there were no God. There's, there's a high probability that there are people among us right now that would profess faith in Yahweh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet live as if they are Lord. It's a good moment for us to say, is that me? And if that's not me in totality, is that me in part? And doubtless we could find areas of our lives where we do that sort of thing. And maybe by the grace of God, we kind of have the Holy Spirit shine a light on that so that we say, I don't want to do that. I know that this is who I was essentially in one way or another, but I know that's not who I am now that I am in Christ Jesus. 
So I don't want to look like what I was. I want to look like the Savior that I'm called to be conformed to. Now, it should be no surprise that if you think that way in your heart and in your mind, that moral degradation uh, follows. Bad thinking drives bad living. So first we are told, back to the text, they are corrupt. Now, it's worth noting that the word corrupt is actually a verb. So you can understand it as they corrupt. So it, it, it may be that they just corrupt the, the right order of things, the, the moral order of things. I think that's how Calvin saw that kind of verb usage right there. They corrupt. Um, they corrupt their works. Maybe it's connected with what comes next, abominable works. So it's connected with the direct object of works. But the idea here, here is that they corrupt. They are corrupt, and they corrupt. It's reminiscent, I think, of uh, Genesis 6, 11, and 12, where we read there that the earth was also corrupt before God. It's reiterated, essentially, in Genesis 6, 12. So God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. So they corrupt. They corrupt their way. And again, it's reminiscent of that language in Genesis 6, interestingly. When you look at that word that's used for corrupt in Genesis 6, the same word is used in Genesis 6.13 to speak of destroy. Translated destroy. So it could be corrupt as to bring to ruin, or it could be translated as destroy. Maybe there's a play on words going on in Genesis 6.11-13. That man so corrupted himself before the flood. And the language of this text, by the way, the the... The language here can actually mean that they corrupt themselves as well. That could be part of the indication here in the language. But if you look at Genesis 6, they so corrupted themselves, the world had become so corrupt, that God destroyed the world. Save eight people, and obviously the, um, the other life, animal life that was preserved and so on. Moral destruction does lead to divine judgment. The next line says, They have done abominable works. Now, this speaks primarily, though not exclusively, to the God-word offensiveness of their behavior, to use language from Derek Kidner. In other words, they make their works such that they are abominations to God. So they are corrupted, they corrupt, and as a result, their works are abominable in God's sight. Now, there are a lot of things that the Scripture identifies as abominations to God. It's good for us to be reminded. Lying lips are an abomination to God. Proverbs 12, 22. He who justifies the wicked and condemns the just is an abomination to God, Proverbs 17, 15. Diverse weights and diverse measures, Proverbs 20, verse 10, is an abomination to God. And here, when God looks at fallen humanity, there's a sense in which those works that are done, not in faith, but as an outflow of the sinfulness of fallen man's heart, are an abomination to God. They are abominable in His sight. And look at the last line of verse 1. The last line of verse 1. There is none who does good. See, this is one of those verses that's going to challenge you. This is one of those verses that forces your mind to align with God's mind. Do you agree with this assessment? If you don't agree with this assessment, let me suggest an analogy to you. I don't know if you've ever had times, maybe this has ever happened to you, where you had something like um, onions as a part of your dinner meal. And they're placed in the garbage, uh, you know, the onions that you didn't need and the peels that were peeled off. And then all of a sudden, as they're sitting in the garbage, over time, they begin to smell. But you don't really know it. 
Right? This can happen with other things too, not only onions. It can happen with salmon. I have some recent experiences in my mind. Uh, and, and, if you, and if you let that sit there, it's going to begin to smell. But oftentimes, you won't know that it smells because you become accustomed to it. it it's, it's when you go outside for a moment and then you come back in and you're like, what in the world? Like, Why is this garbage not out yet? And then you realize, I should take out the garbage and I need to do that. But you become so accustomed to it that you don't realize. And I think as fallen human beings, we have become so accustomed just to thinking, you know, he's a good guy, she's a good guy, they do a lot of good, and so on. And we have to understand that, yes, maybe from an, on a horizontal level, On a simply human level, we could see what's good for human beings, but what God calls good and what human beings call good are often not the same. But for the Christian, our our mind should be aligned with His will. According to God's Word, there is none who does good. And again, you're going to note note this. In case, like, I'm not convincing you yet, but wait. Wait to verses 2 and 3, and the Scripture is going to make the case so as to convince you. And I'll get back to why that is. Because I I want to understand what you might be thinking in your mind. No one does good. So you're telling me if an unbeliever who worships a pagan idol, for instance, helps an old lady across the street, that's not a good thing? So you're telling me that if somebody is hurt on the side of the road, and let's say religious people pass and do nothing, but this unbeliever passes and helps this person up, puts them in their own car, drives them to the hospital, waits there with that person until they're taken care of, waits for them to be discharged, takes them home, tucks them into bed, makes them breakfast, lunch, and dinner. If they do all that, you're telling me that's not good? That's right. Okay, that's one thing for you to say that's right, but that's not an argument. (laughs) What's the argument? Well, the argument is if all things were created by God, for God, through Christ, and for Christ, if everything that ultimately exists, exists in one way or another for the glory of God, if I do something for another human being and not for the glory of God, I say in my heart there is no God, or no God for me, or I'll make my own God, whatever it might be. Whatever good I do is really just an outworking of my own idolatry. So let's say I think human beings are the most important thing on the planet. And I say the chief end of man is to take care of other people. That's an outworking of idolatry. Now the deed in itself may be a good deed, but the motivation behind the deed is what taints the deed. Therefore, there's no one who does good. Right, So to help an old lady across the street who needs help across the street, that is in itself good. But what makes my work not a good work is if I'm doing it not unto the glory of God and not in true faith. Because whatever is not a faith, to use language from Romans 14, is sin. And that's kind of a good principle for us just to evaluate the works of men and women through. According to the scriptures, there is none who does good. Now note, now note, you might say then, you might say, well, let's take a step further. Well, what about Christians? Aren't Christians called to do good works? So how could Christians then do good works if no, there is no one who does good? Hang in there. <laughs> the idea here is that when God looks at the mass of fallen humanity, this is the state of fallen humanity. But there's a miracle that happens. God takes a people from amongst the mass of fallen humanity. And that's even witnessed to in this psalm, as we're going to see. Because there's an unexpected verse in this psalm that if you're reading verses 1 through 3, you get to this other verse a little bit later on and you're like, how did that verse get there? And we'll explain a little bit more when we get there. But now, looking at verse um, 2, we read the following. The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand who seek God. 
So here, we get a view much higher and much wider than a bird's eye view, namely a God's eye view. That's the vantage point that's described here. It's put in human language, anthropomorphic language. In other words, speaking in the manner of men, right? So the Lord looks down from heaven. You kind of get this, this viewpoint of like God looking down, as it were, outside of the windows of heaven. You might think of an, another uh, time where this kind of language is used in like Judges chapter 5 when Sisera's mother is described as looking out her window. This is human language. God doesn't have to like get a better view of earth by looking down, but it's anthropomorphic language. It's speaking after the manner of men with the backdrop and the proper understanding of divine omniscience. So you see the uh, anthropomorphism in the phrase, the Lord looks down upon the children of men. Now that imagery connotes, I think, uh, God's elevated grandeur and also his perfect omniscient scrutiny of the behavior of fallen mankind. The Lord looks down. It's as though the imagery is meant to, for us to see his elevated state. And as he looks down, it's like the sense of his perfect evaluation. It's as though he perfectly scrutinizes the thoughts and behaviors of men and women. And what is he looking for? What is this divine investigation? That's the picture here, right? It's a picture of divine investigation. What is God looking for? To see if there are any who understand, who seek God. Again, God knows it perfectly. We know Psalm 147 verse 5 says his understanding is infinite. Yet, so as to connote this in human language, to help us understand that God did a perfect investigation, if you will. He looks down from heaven and he looks to see if there are any who understand. Um, this word here that's used in the Hebrew, sakal, speaks of, as one commentator noted, someone who has wisdom or prudence, someone who makes wise choices because of proper understanding and knowledge, someone who recognizes the sovereignty of God and tries to live by divine providence at least. Then there's the word seek. The word seek. It speaks of somebody who would inquire or search out a matter with regards to something. And here it's with respect to God. Are there any who seek God? Now we'll get to the verdict in a moment. But I just want to take another moment here. Quick pastoral application. God is looking from heaven in this passage to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. So whereas verse 1 begins to paint a picture of depravity, I think in the second line of verse 2, we get a little glimpse of what devotion looks like. It looks like one who seeks God. Oh, may this be a word that well categorizes what you and I do. That we seek God. And you may say, well, what does it mean to seek God? That we be a people who seek His face. 2 Chronicles 7.14 well, what does that mean? That you want to know Him. You want to, you want to seek His face. It's the opposite of forsaking Him. First Chronicles 28.9. So, if forsaking Him means kind of like forgetting about God and kind of walking away from God, seeking Him means pursuing Him, remembering Him, thinking about Him. It means seeking His commandments. First Chronicles 28.8. To use language from the Sermon on the Mount, it means seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. Matthew 6.33. It means looking to the Lord for help. Seeking God means looking to the Lord for help. A good way to kind of test yourself to say, am I seeking God? Have you asked God for help for anything? 
We remember Asa, one of the kings, one of the kings of Judah, that although he had a, a, a very good start, that towards the end of his life, when he became, when he became ill, he sought the physicians. And he didn't seek God. In contrast to that, we see Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah. You can see this in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, verses 3 and 4. Jehoshaphat and the people of Judah sought Yahweh for help. So seeking God, in part, means seeking God for help. To use language from Ezra 8.21, it could mean seeking God for direction. So when the text here says, to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God, you're understanding, okay, that would mean something like seeking God's face, seeking God's commandments, seeking God for help, seeking God for direction, and so on. So that's the investigation. Now we come to the verdict. The results of the search are found in verse 3. They have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is none who does good. No, not one. So this is not simply the psalmist's perspective. This is God's assessment. The point is reinforced here. It's the conclusion of, if you will, the investigation. First, they have all turned aside. Now, not everyone will embrace um, theoretical atheism. But all turn aside. You say, turn aside from what? What, what? what do you mean, turn aside? I think the implication is to turn aside from God, to turn aside from truth, to turn aside from the right path marked by understanding, um, to not seek Him, but to turn from Him. It's all implied in turning aside. You can imagine how this would have application to those in Israel, right, who heard the law of Yahweh proclaimed, and then to turn aside from it and then to live as though Yahweh was not God. So turning aside could, could be especially applicable to uh, Old Covenant Israel. But you can imagine, even among the Gentile nations, as God looks down upon the children of men generally, not just upon Israel, but they turn aside. And again, that Romans 1 connection of kind of knowing God in that not really knowing Him way, but like knowing He's there and then suppressing that truth and righteousness and exchanging the truth for a lie. To turn aside from general revelation and to kind of put one's own um, God upon the throne, to turn aside from what is right, to turn aside from truth. They have together become corrupt. So kind of God's general assessment of humanity is akin to what it was pre-flood. So pre-flood, God looks at humanity, they are corrupt. Post-flood, God looks at humanity, they are corrupt. We are corrupt in and of ourselves. Now watch this. Look at the last um, two lines. There is none who does good. And I love the last line here, as though we need it. No, not one. No, not one reinforces the previous line. And the previous line is reinforced by verse 1. It's as though God is saying, you need to get this. And I know it's not going to be easy for you to get this, but you need to get this. There is none who does good. No, not one. As Spurgeon noted, fallen humanity is a desert without an oasis, a night without a star, and the other analogies that he goes on to use. But that's what fallen humanity looks like in the sight of God. Now, this text, uh, verses 1 through 3, are quoted by the Apostle Paul in Romans 3. In Romans chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is kind of making the climax of his case to show how both Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. 
that whether it's Gentiles, Romans 1, whether it's Jews, Romans 2, that all humanity is under sin. So when the Apostle Paul, writing on the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote what he wrote in Romans 3, he's taking this text and he's applying it for essentially the same purpose, to say all mankind is guilty. We'll get to where Paul goes with that in a moment. But I want to just take a moment here to make sure that we get the doctrine of human nature right. The doctrine of human nature, if you're going to rightly understand it scripturally, can be understood in these terms. Total depravity, or better said, radical corruption. The idea being, if you you use the terminology total depravity, not that fallen humanity is as depraved as he or she can be, that everybody is as, you know, everybody is as bad as they could be. It's not what it means. It just means the totality of a person has been tainted by sin. So severely so that the consequences are very serious scripturally. So, biblically, you would hold to a right view to say that mankind in his fallen state is totally depraved, meaning that at the root of who he is, that's the radical corruption part, at the root of who he is, all the facets of man have been tainted by sin. That's what total depravity or radical corruption means. Well witnessed to in the scriptures. For example, we're told in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, that we are by nature children of wrath. And we're by nature children of wrath because by nature we're at enmity with God. You see that in Romans chapter 8, verses 7 and 8. There we're told that the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, which is contrasted with the spiritual mind, the mind that's in a believer as a result of being born again by the Holy Spirit, the carnal mind is at enmity against God. It is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That's what I mean. The consequences of our fallen nature are rather serious. Because if those who are in the flesh cannot please God, that means that fallen man cannot do that which is the most pleasing in the sight of God, namely receiving the Son of God as Savior. That's how radically corrupted we are, that we need to be rescued because we are so radically corrupted. John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20 read, And this is the condemnation, that light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. And there are plenty of other texts that would witness to this. So the consequences of our fallen state, that there's no one who does good, no one who understands, no one who seeks God, would leave us in a completely hopeless state, and you would be right to ask the question, if that was the case, George, then nobody could ultimately come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because nobody could do that which is pleasing in God's sight. Nobody could do, uh, nobody can make their carnal mind not be hostile towards God. So if you're right, George, then nobody would ever come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wrong. The fallen state of man is such that we would not choose light, we would always choose darkness, because by nature we love darkness rather than light. But God in His great mercy saves a people. And by His grace He opens up the eyes of people. Think of Jesus' words. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, Jesus speaks there about no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son 
and whoever the Son chooses to reveal him to. It's basically the idea there of Matthew chapter 11, verse 27. You think of Lydia, for example, in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. She's hearing the preaching and the teaching of the Apostle Paul, and the text tells us that the Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. So she couldn't do it. Her heart would love darkness rather than light. But God in His grace opened up Lydia's heart so that she might receive the things spoken by Paul. Think of John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. But as many as received Him, speaking of Christ, to them He gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in His name. But watch who these people are, verse 13. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In Acts 18.27, believers are identified as those who believed through grace. Believed through grace. In 1 Corinthians 3.6, the Apostle Paul said, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. I preached the initial message of the gospel of salvation. Apollos built upon that, but the only reason why there was increase is because God gave the increase. Think of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God will grant them repentance so they may know the truth. So if you see the radical nature of our corruption, if you you get that, you say, I'm so radically corrupt that by nature I love darkness rather than light. My carnal mind is not subject to the law of God and it cannot be. I cannot do in my flesh the things that please God. If you see how radically corrupt you are, then you can see how radical the grace of God is. If you don't see how radically corrupt you are, you're not going to see how radical the grace of God is. Because we are so depraved at the root of who we are that we would not choose light. But God is so gracious that His grace is so deep that He goes into the very root of our depravity and He changes us at the heart level. He gives us a new heart, takes out the stony heart, gives us a heart of flesh. So if you can see the radical nature of corruption, you can see the radical nature of divine grace. And Paul, when he's making this case, by the way, if you were to read Romans 3, he's talking about the corruption of fallen men. And all all of it's leading to the need for the Savior. That's where he's going with it in Romans chapter 3. But we'll get there soon enough in the message. I want to work through the rest of our text. Um, Verse 4 reads, Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge, who eat up my people as bread, and do not call on the Lord? Now, there's a question here. Uh, some writers would think that you know, this is maybe just David still speaking. Many commentators see this as connoting divine astonishment, that Yahweh, if you will, breaks through here and utters um, what is said in verse 4. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? In either, in either way, there is a sense of astonishment. Either it's David connoting his astonishment as written by the Holy Spirit, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, or it's God breaking through and speaking in a kind of first-person language. But the astonishment is that these workers of iniquity, do they not realize what they're doing? That's kind of like the picture here. Do they have no knowledge? Do, do they not, are they not aware that their practice of evil brings with it some serious consequences? Who eat up my people as they eat bread. The imagery is clear. 
They devour God's people, as one commentator put it, as naturally as they eat bread. It's kind of, they just become callous. They are indifferent to the suffering that they bring. There's no remorse. There's no repentance. They just eat God's people as though they eat bread. So the ungodly, out of their hatred for God, so often take their hatred for God out upon the people of God. You see that essentially in Acts chapter 9 when Jesus interrupts the journey of Saul of Tarsus and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Because to persecute Christ's people is to persecute Him. And sometimes fallen man, just out of fallen man's hatred for God, will eat up the people of God as though they are bread and not even think twice about it. And it's an outworking of hatred towards God. And you got the description here, and do, they do not call on the Lord. That language appears to speak of prayer. Uh, it could be calling on the Lord for help, calling on the Lord in prayer. They do not do that kind of thing. In verse 5 we read, There they are in great fear, for God is with the generation of the righteous. So here's, a, here's an interesting text. And it singles, signals a kind of transition. There they are in great fear. And maybe you're like me and you ask, where is there? Right? That's the question. That's the question for me. I, I, I would like to know for a certainty where there is. Because there are different opinions as to where there is. Um, now one possibility, some, some suggest, is that this is calling to mind past instances of where people were persecuting the people of God. Take, for instance, the Egyptians seeking to persecute the Israelites as they were making their way through the Red Sea. And then you can look in a passage like in, um, in Exodus chapter 14, verses 24 and 25, and you could see that God was with the people of Israel. And you could see He made a distinction between the people of Israel and the Egyptians as the sea closed in upon them. And before that happened, if you read the text, they were in great fear. So some people say it's kind of looking back to, a, to an event that serves as a paradigm there in this place where they're persecuting the people of God. They were in great fear, and that's a paradigm of what's to come. Maybe. <laughs> some people look at it as a prophetic there. I think that would be a little bit more possible. Um, that there's coming a point there. All of a sudden there's this prophetic kind of... Um, movement to the moment where they are brought to a place where they realize that the people of God are the people of God and that they were eating God's people like bread. And then all of a sudden they are held to an account for their sins. Fun in folly gives way to great fear and the terror of divine judgment. You look at passages like Isaiah 2.19 or Revelation 6.15 and those would be passages that kind of connote that kind of thing. Um, 2 Thessalonians 1, the latter part I think does as well. There might also speak to what was just referenced in verse 4. I think that's kind of a good argument contextually. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat my people as they eat bread and do not call on the name of the Lord? There they are in great fear. And that might speak to the terror that the wicked person feels. A kind of a pang of conscience that they have to suppress. This kind of awareness, even if momentary, that what they are doing, they are doing to the people of God. And there's a fear of divine judgment for what they're doing. I know this is wrong. I know I'm going to pay for it. Suppress it. Maybe. I don't know exactly where there is. I can tell you one thing, though. There is coming an ultimate there. There is coming a time when they will be there. And you're like, where is there? Before the judgment seat of God. 
Not the judgment seat of Christ that believers will stand before where believers are rewarded for their works or lose rewards and so on, but what's called the great white throne judgment. And the children of God, the sons of God, the daughters of God will be manifested to be that. And they will be given an account, all those who persecuted the people of God and rebelled against Christ. There they will be in great fear. For God is with the generation of the righteous. That's how foolish the way of the foolish is, because it's leading to that. It's leading to great fear. Great fear that will come with great punishment. And here's that verse that I told you about, that if you're just reading through Psalm 14, you're like, how did these people get in here? For God is with the generation of the righteous. And you're like, how do you get the generation? I just read verses 1 through 3. There's no one who does good. There's no one who understands. And there's no one who seeks God. But then all of a sudden, God's with the generation of the righteous. So how do you get the generation of the righteous? That's what Paul is arguing in Romans 3. He's arguing that look, all of humanity has fallen, Jew and Gentile alike. They're all radically corrupted and depraved. But there's good news. And the good news of the gospel that God has set forth His Son as a propitiation. God did not let sins go unaccounted for. He ultimately made sure that all the sins of His people would be placed upon His Son. Past, present, and future sins. That's what Paul is driving for. He's showing the great guilt of humanity so he could then show the great solution for man's great guilt, namely Jesus Christ. That's how you get the generation of the righteous. In the Old Testament, a person was saved by grace through faith, right? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. But how could Abraham have righteousness imputed to him? In light of the coming work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Part of the argument that Paul is making in Romans 3 as well. That whether you're Abraham or David or whether you're Paul or you or I, we are fallen human beings, and the only way to be made right with God is in light of what God's Son has done for us. Dying for our sins on the cross. That's how you get the generation of the righteous. Old Testament saints who believed by faith and were made righteous. Pulled out from the mass of fallen humanity. Granted grace to believe. And made righteous. Old Testament times, Old Covenant times, New Covenant times alike. I do want you to note too, just a little bit of, um, as I get ready to close, just look within the psalm. And you can see a little bit who the righteous are. See a little bit about who they are. Um, we're told that God is with the generation of the righteous. Isn't that amazing, by the way? Quick, quick note. Again, I, I want to keep calling your attention to these things because I think it's so helpful. Because sometimes we just think in the Old Testament context, people were just always rescued, right? Like David didn't die until he was an old man and died in old age. So therefore, everybody in the Old Covenant times who was righteous, they just, you know, they were always delivered from everything. No, we keep seeing that in the Psalms. God's people were eaten like bread. Yet, God could say in the very next verse, God is with the generation of the righteous. So you mean you're with your people even as they're eaten like bread? To use language from Hebrews 11, even as they're sawn asunder, you're there with them? That's biblical, yes. And he'll be with them forever. He'll be with them forever. How are the people of God described? Well, you could look at the language of verse 4. The generation of the righteous is described as my people. And if that's not just David speaking there, but Yahweh speaking in that first person sense through David to be a witness to God speaking about his people in that personal way. They are the people, look at verse 6, the second half. They are the people who take refuge in the Lord. So who is the generation of the righteous? Those who seek refuge in Yahweh. 
so often, first line of verse 6, they are the poor. They are the poor. That lines up with what we read earlier in the service in James 2. Well, let's go to verse 6, then we'll read verse 7 and uh, get ready to close. You shame the counsel of the poor, but Yahweh is his refuge. That first line could be rendered also, you, um, you frustrate the plans of the poor. So you've got possibilities there. You shame the counsel of the poor. You frustrate the plans of the poor. So you do these things to hurt the poor. Who are the poor here? The believing poor. The generation of the righteous, God's people. You do these things to hurt them, but at the end of the day, Yahweh is his refuge. Yahweh is nonetheless his refuge. Verse 7. Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When Yahweh, or when the Lord, brings back the captivity of his people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. So look where this psalm ends. This psalm ends with David expressing his desire, expressing his longing for Yahweh's salvation. Now it hadn't happened yet. The people of God were still, as in the case of many psalms, in need of deliverance. They were still getting eaten up like bread. And David's longing is expressed in the words, Oh, that the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. So here he's envisioning help for the people of God coming out of Zion. That's where Yahweh established his throne upon the earth. See, in Psalm 3, verse 4, for instance, David said, I cried to Yahweh with my voice, and he heard me from his holy hill. That holy hill was Mount Zion. Of all the places on planet earth, God chose a specific place, as a place where he would be enthroned, as it were, on the earth, where the Ark of the Covenant would be, where the temple would be. It was the place where exiles prayed towards, right? Exiles play, prayed towards Jerusalem towards Yahweh's holy hill. You see Daniel do that, like Daniel 6. That was the expectation per Solomon's um, prayer of dedication in 1 Kings 8, 44. Why? Again, because of all the places on the earth, Yahweh chose Mount Zion as the place where he would have his throne upon the earth. And one day, by the way, per Zechariah chapter 14 and per Acts chapter 1, King Jesus is coming back to Mount Zion. He's going to touch down on the Mount of Olives. And then it looks like the Kidron Valley is going to split open. And then he's going to make his way to Mount Zion. He's going to come out of Zion, (laughs) the new Jerusalem, where he is, seated at the right hand of the Father. And he's going to touch down on planet Earth. And he's going to make his way towards Mount Zion. And in the most ultimate sense, the ultimate restoration of Israel will come. And the one who is the true vine will come out of Mount Zion in heaven and he will touch down on planet earth and make his way to the earthly Mount Zion and his throne will be established. Now David didn't know that this day would eventually come. You've got to love this. Look at the language here. When the Lord brings back the captivity of his people. When? So, he, so he, God's people are getting eaten like bread. It looks like the wicked are winning. Oh, that salvation would come out of Zion. When? It's going to happen. I don't know when it's going to happen exactly, but it's going to happen. It's not an if, it's a when. Now, some people have, I think, mistakenly thought, yeah, that kind of language there in verse 7, when it says that the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, I think that's an insert from a post-exilic author, meaning 
that they think it's some writer after the Jewish people had been taken captive to Babylon. There were multiple deportations. But after that, that some writer added this because, you know, during David's day, there wasn't like a captivity. So this is probably, you know, a later author who's writing that. Um, I don't think that's the case at all. I think that this is David. And I think that this is the language that he's using. It could either be this language or it could be taken another way. I'll be brief with this, but I think it's helpful for us to know. The words, uh, when the Lord brings back the captivity of his people, can be rendered when the Lord restores the fortunes of his people. Essentially, when the Lord turns the tables. So right now, it looks like the wicked are in power. You take, for example, the time of Absalom, right? Tables are turned. All of a sudden, you got Absalom in power and all wicked people alongside of him, Ahithophel and so on. But there's going to come a time when the Lord turns the tables and restores the fortunes of his people. So that could be the language that David is using here. It's very very possible. I also don't discount the possibility that he could be speaking of captivity. Because if you look in a place, and this would be very helpful to note, in a place like Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verses 1 through 6, there at the end of the Mosaic law there is essentially the prophecy that the people of God would rebel against the law of God and they would be scattered throughout the earth but in Deuteronomy 30 there's the promise that they would be brought back questions as to what is the ultimate application of that connections with Romans 11 good possibility but I say that to say I think David is clearly writing here David is writing, the Lord will bring back the captivity of his people. Uh, The Lord will turn the fortunes, turn the circumstances of his people. And I think we get some great application right here at the end. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. It hasn't happened yet. But in light of what's going to happen, let the people of God rejoice. Let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. So for an Old Covenant Israelite, that would be, okay, well, one day the tables are going to be turned and Israel is going to be restored. For a New Testament Christian, we wait for the consummation of history when Christ comes and He takes His throne upon the earth and He reigns. And we long for that moment. But I think the application here is so great. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Christian, rejoice in the waiting, being assured of what is coming. That's, I think, a closing application for the Christian in the psalm. Rejoice in the waiting, be assured, in light of being assured of what's coming. When you do that, you look like Jesus. You think of the language from the writer of Hebrews, that Jesus, who for what? Who for the joy set before him, endured the cross and despising the shame. He he looked for that. looked for that moment, that joy that was set before him, and that was part of the way he endured the cross, even though he despised the shame. I think we would do well to live like that. Um, there's a song that um, is on one of the um, albums that we listen to, and it's called Someday. And uh, it says things like this, simplistic in the language, but nonetheless, I think profound if you grab on to the implications of it. Someday, I'm going to see my Jesus. Someday, over the blue. Someday, I'm going to join the chorus. My friend, how about you? (laughs) Someday, I'm going to be happy. Someday, I'll remember the rest of the lyrics to it. But that's what I know so far. (laughs) But the idea is like, I know this day is coming. Someday, this is going to happen. Someday. 
So Christian, in the waiting, rejoice, being assured of what's coming. Someday all those things are going to happen. Your Savior's going to return. You're going to be in His presence. All wrongs will be accounted for by the living God and joy unending and uninterrupted will happen. Last thing, and I, I, I just give a closing gospel call. Look at verse 7 one more time. Oh, that salvation, the salvation of Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord brings back the captivity of His people, let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. The implication when it says let salvation come out of Zion, the implication is that salvation is coming not from men but from God, right? David isn't saying let salvation come out of Zion when strong men deliver us from our enemies. He's saying let salvation come out of Zion because he's looking for Yahweh from his holy hill to deliver. And I just want to say if you haven't come to the Lord Jesus Christ, please know that salvation in the most ultimate sense, forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God does not come from men. It comes from God. There's nothing that man can do to make himself right with God. Salvation can only come from God. Therefore, to receive forgiveness, you must receive the way in which God has made for men and women to be forgiven. And that's through Jesus Christ. That's through Jesus Christ, His Son. You believe that God set Him forth to be the propitiation. I close. I keep saying I'm going to close. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Last night as a family, we're going through James 5, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And I, and I keep saying, it's a long closing. I'm just reminding you that the closing is happening. <laughs> someday. Someday. I'm going to close this message. Someday. <laughs> in, Ro- in Romans 3, this is just a closing, closing gospel call. Um, after Paul quotes those uh, texts I read earlier, he says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith. In Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, a wrath-appeasing offering, by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness Because in his forbearance, God passed over sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you, Lord, that coming to this text as Christians, we are uh, reminded of uh, who we were, who we are in and of our fallen selves, Lord, in our fallen state. But yet at the same time, we're reminded of the great love wherewith you've loved us. And that you, from the mass of corrupt humanity, you took corrupt individuals like us, and then you made us a part of the generation of the righteous. Thank you. To you be all the glory for that. Lord, we pray that in light of your word, there would be more and more individuals who go from um, what you would identify as a foolish way of thinking, And that by your grace, they might seek you, knowing that you, Heavenly Father, have made a way for men and women to be forgiven. Thank you for your word. Help us, Heavenly Father, 
to not look like the fool as identified in this text. Help us to be identified and marked as those who seek you. Help us to remember that although throughout history your people have been eaten like bread at times, you are nonetheless with your people and nothing can separate your people from your love. And that one day, deliverance will come out of the heavenly Zion. And the Savior will come back to this earth and He will judge the world in righteousness. We thank You, Heavenly Father, for our Savior. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.